0: Constructed Criticism is sponsored by Oasis Games. MTGoasis.com is the place to get cards for your next magic event. Try them out with code CCMTG for 15% off of your first order and use the code Would that be good for 4% off of every order. Want to support the show directly? Head on over to patreon.com/CCMTG to check out some awesome benefits and future goals for the show. Thanks for listening and here's this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic: the gathering at every level. From popper Leagues to Top 1000 Mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at PureMTGO.com, where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MTGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show from YouTube, podcasts, and more. Here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 399th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your host, Mason. Joined by my two co-hosts, Big A Abe and Heasy Spencer. How are y'all doing today?
0: I am as good as a top five player in MTG. You know, those top five specifically being PVDDR, John Finkel, Kai Buda. <laughs> you're so, I, I can't even finish it. No, I can't finish it because you're like, you're like mad. <laughs> I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> no, LSV and Seth Manfield. I dealt with this as like a Tom Brady fan for... So at some point, you have to admit that Seth has been playing since 2014, basically. And his stats are that much better than basically every humans other than PVDDRs and he deserves that spot anyway I'm not are you? Conversation
2: them, right? <laughs> i got a new nickname today so <laughs> yeah, I, I like it, a big a uh, <laughs> the more you say it the more i'm like feeling like i should be pushing back against it even more than i already subtly have All right but, no, we're off uh, of that. you know we tried
0: it we we wore it on like a hat like are you okay with the lockout or
2: I'm pretty upset about the lockout, but the players deserve more money, dude. It's, it's not even close. Like, the owners are just being greedy and, and ridiculous, so...
0: I think I'm think might... i hoping that I get
2: to see more Nationals baseball in the near future. I'm What's really a hoping lockout? for it. So, basically, the uh, the players union and the owners of the teams need to reach a deal for the players to get paid equitably and for the games to happen. And the, oh, like, it's, like it, a it's always a conflict between, like... The owners want more playoffs because that's where they make most of the money and like, ratings and, and shit. But, like, having playoffs doesn't actually do much for the players because it, like, kind of, like, waters down everything else, makes the whole season matter less. In baseball, kind of, this a long history of having really long seasons and, and lots of games. So you actually get to see the best teams and have large statistical samples for everyone. And also minor league players get paid, like, disproportionately less than a- anyone in the majors. So, like, the whole players' union has to, like, kind of, like, look out for the farm systems and stuff. It's like this huge inner working labor dispute. And the owner is always like, Oh, we can, you'll come around to us. You need us. And the players are like, you need us. So it's, it's, it's
0: really interesting. When you look at like the history of magic for what it's worth. Cause like the players tried to unionize, like pay the players in like 2014 or maybe it was a little bit before that, but like, Oh pay the pros, pay the yeah. pros. Thank you. If you kind of look at like magic, like when they tried to make the players not matter, The the whole thing collapsed, right? The biggest group that has done a really good job of this is actually the NBA. The Players Union has a ton of power in the NBA. The G League players get paid, I think, like a minimum of 40K. Like, it's a pretty good salary. They absolutely crushed it. And also, like, the bubble happened in the NBA during COVID. Just a total slam dunk success. Baseball has this thing that Abe just mentioned, this problem of, like, The season is way too long uh, and doesn't make any sense. That's why the product sucks. Anyway, the thing is, is like if you compare it to Magic, like there was like a huge problem with like GPs mattering a certain amount, right? How many GPs you played and like GP points and then they like switched to your top 10 GPs. MLB is like basically before they made that switch where like all of your games count for some reason, but there's like 138 games. That's not true. I think there's 96 games or something.
1: This week's baseball podcast. This week on the show, we're going to be talking about three shortcuts to help you improve in magic. And it's a little interesting how we're going to be doing that. But we're going to get more to that when the time comes for that. But first, we're going to be doing always improving. Abe, what was your always improving moment this week?
2: So this week was um, the sealed arena open. I actually got a bunch of interest from... Some people around me asked me about, you know, how do I approach the limited format, helping people understand the draft format better in lead up to that. And I was kind of trying to think about how to explain some of my philosophy on the value of staying open. I'd also, at the same time, been playing this game, Luck Be a Landlord on Steam, which is kind of like a Slay the Spire-esque deck building kind of game. Uh, I'm not gonna get too much into the specifics, but at the like highest ascension level of that game, the way you have to play it changes from like a normal, oh, I'll be really selective about only getting the things I need, to something more resembling a real draft environment, you have to take a card every time. Are almost forced into making selections and kind of dealing with the fact that you're diluting yourself and kind of moving yourself towards the best thing you could possibly have with the unknowns coming to you. And that analogy really helped me not only like understand what was going on better there, but also just explain better why it is that I was proposing to people who had the same common ground as me on games like that to why it is I was like, okay, you should probably consider making a pick to stay open here because like the value of taking this card that's maybe off color or has like the highest payout in in these other scenarios, like you could shift colors into It's actually worth it. Even though current card that you're looking at is like on color and like would go in most of your decks. If you're like in blue, taking this random like red card that maybe is in the pack a little late could be better because you're going to wind up with like just a better deck overall if you're able to play it. Thinking about that through this other game, why is it that I'm taking these cards and why is it that I'm taking the ones that I'm taking uh, out of like a much smaller sample, pushing myself forwards towards what I think is possible and being able to put that the same way I thought was like pretty pretty big for me.
0: I really like what you just talked about like on the overall construction of your deck and like how your deck presents itself in like the, the game plan of it because i think that one of the coolest parts about sealed i know you were talking about drafts just now but like in sealed specifically i actually think it has pretty great analog to constructed in that understanding your game plan in sealed leads to more wins in a lot of ways that it does that in constructed i noticed that a lot of constructed players were doing better this weekend than you maybe your draft grinders and i think a huge part of that is like This ability to identify those specific things.
1: I don't have a whole lot to add. I think that's really interesting, though. And uh, it's cool to have those kind of moments. Spencer, what was your always improving moment this week?
0: I ended up downstairs uh, and playing mobile Magic the Gathering. I got pretty sick at the end of last week. Just found myself kind of on the couch in the basement. It's really funny if you kind of look at the timeline, but like... It might have been Friday night. I posted my Mono White deck list in the Patreon Discord and said, this is free Ws. Like, you should play this. And then Mono White dominated the challenges on MTGO. One of the things that happened to me this week, I've in the past been really good about. And it's actually been kind of harder in this format, which is just understanding what an individual game is about. Not what, like, my deck is trying to do. If I sit down, my hand... Contextualizes these things in the first X turns. A really good example of this, I'm gonna forget the name of the card, but it's the the three one life link. It, you pay two to like put a counter on it, and all of its counters give your creatures plus one plus one. Ability that that card has to like scale in the game was something that I hadn't thought about a lot in the last like couple times playing with it. Like I, I've usually only played it as a queue up stuff like that. And the other things is like. Boarding out things like um, welcoming vampire was something that I was not doing a lot of. If the matchup is not about like what Welcoming Vampire was trying to do, I kind of was laying down there and like realized this matchup is actually not about this. It was really interesting to like have these really easy sideboarding moments. And this is like an improvement that I made in Magic, I want to say in like 2020 to 2021, where like I was really focusing on aggro decks and understanding them between playing mono red, mono green, and mono white and understanding, like, Monocolor decks in this format, there's so much going on. And understanding, like, an individual turn sequence or what your opponent is trying to do and how you can disrupt it while also advancing your game plan, Mono White really leads into that. I was pretty impressed with myself. I think I went on, like, a, a seven-game win streak with Mono White on mobile, like, in my basement sick. It was entirely off the back of just like, okay, here's my opening hand. Here's what I know about what my opponents playing. Here's where I can go from here. It felt good. It felt like the work that I had put in for two years and getting better at aggro really paid off. I remember doing like a streaming series where I was talking about how bad I was at mono red and like how I didn't understand why I was bad at it and not being able to figure it out. And I, I really feel like I figured it out after this week. Uh,
1: My Always Improving Moment comes from this past weekend as well. I went and played a local 2K, which you can hear a funny side story about if you listen to the mic check. It's one of the perks of being a patron. I played Grixis Shadow. And I have one whole league to my name on Grixis Shadow before this event, prepared readily for this event. And um, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do and all these sort of things and the numbers and stuff. And one thing that early on I was kind of big on, but I doubted myself, and I, I went with something which is kind of the whole point that I was proving here, is that some people had gone for the 20th land in Shadow. I know, a big innovation. And they had the one Fiery Islet. And the majority of people had not. Even after it had been uh, kind of around for like two weeks now, still a, a, the majority went with 19 lands. And despite knowing it's an expressive iteration deck, and despite knowing it's a Lurus deck, and knowing that I'm going to have a lot of use for all my mana, and that even if my spells are all 1 and 2 mana, I'd like to do more than one of them every turn, I still, in the last minute took the Fiery Islet out of my deck and put, I think it was a Drown the Lock or it was a Fatal Push. It was one of those interaction spells, the, the extra copy in. I made top eight of the event. Uh, I lost a really close one in the semis or whatever, or the quarter, sorry. But ultimately, like, all day I was kind of like, huh, I kind of wish I just, like, wasn't having to aggressively top these lands on these DRCs because I kind of need to have at least three mana, ideally four mana, so I can go, like, one, one, two, or go, like, Luris plus Interaction. And that sort of stuff, I really regret. And kind of just defaulting to, like, well, if everyone's doing this. It's probably right. is sometimes reasonable. But I knew there's a lot of factors in that deck. And I knew that the way I was trying to position the deck made it better to actually have the 20th land. And I, I should have gone with that instead of being like, eh, everyone's doing this, whatever. It's fine. It can't be that wrong to have, you know, another one mana interaction spell in my deck. Uh, it's going to be six at some percentage of the time. And, you know, should have just had another land. Would have been good how do you apply that moving forward just don't be lazy or whatever like just critically think about it more it's kind of what it comes down to because it was a thing where originally on monday going into this last week i was supposed to be my modern seat for the energy i'm playing this weekend it's right Chad. every every the weekend i'm playing a big tournament for the next couple weeks and so now back to the weird days but i was supposed to be the modern seat and i was going to play shadow for the event and so i was this testing started on tuesday i found out I'm not going to be the modern team. I'm going to be the legacy seat. So things had to shift or whatever. I'm already locked into doing this 2K, and I want to do well at the 2K. I wasn't really happy with the 29th finish at the last energy. I really wanted to like top it and win, and so I did spend some amount of time on Shadow, but not like playing, but like thinking about stuff. I don't have that many games on this. A lot of people are doing it this way, and they're advocating for doing it this way. Uh, You know, a lot of really good players, like I think Baumeister got played 19 lands, for example, this past weekend in Shadow. A lot of people did. And I I do think it is wrong after playing with it more and thinking about it more, where you really just want to be using a lot of your spells and using a lot of mana on every single turn. Having more lands is good. And I should have just been like, well, even though everyone's doing this, having like my deck play out like this is really good. And I fell for the trap of like cantripping for lands instead of cantripping for spells, Essentially, and being like, yeah, with my DRCs and my expressive iterations and my bobbles, I'll be able to move to the lands that I need. And instead of being like, oh, with these things, I can move towards the like one of and two of spells I have. I don't need to have like all the drown the locks. Like it's nice in games where you have four drown the locks and you cast them all. You're typically pretty happy, but that typically isn't when cow games actually play out, especially in modern. I should have made my deck more consistent. And I kind of knew that going into it. And I just, in the last minute, was like, spells are pretty good. and put spells in my deck, so. you got to remind yourself, lands are pretty good, too, Mason. You I know, I know all head. about it. That's going to do it for our always improving moments. If you want to support the show, you can patreon.com slash ccmtg. The show will always be free. But one of the benefits you get, along with my trick we talked about earlier, is get a Patreon shout-out. So shout-out to Ben newest patron of the show. There's been a lot of talk. Believe it or not, people are excited for Paper Magic. People have been talking much because they're excited for like Indy and in Dallas and stuff like that. A little energy hype. So, uh, you know, some stuff's going on there. You get to be part of the Discord, and you get to ask a question, which we'll go over later in the show. But before we move on to our main topic and all that sort of stuff, Spencer, we need to do a little housekeeping.
0: I want to rewind really quick just because I just want to, the show is growing again and I just want to shout out Mason for, like, sticking it through during the COVID era. We're about to hit episode 400, and I don't know if I'll remember to say it during the show. I really appreciate you. And, like, I obviously quit before COVID. Seeing, like, the reaction on Twitter, Facebook, on the the Discord, obviously this is what you were hoping for the whole time. But you stuck through it, and I just I want to give you a shout out. And I want to give all of our new patrons a shout-out. I get the excitement as, like, we're coming close to the end of uh, a really crappy part of everyone's lives. Uh, I just want to give a shout-out to Homeward Path, a podcast that reached over 100 episodes while on our network. Adam Spain, a local to Mason, who was doing this show, just driving home from work, recording a podcast, Listen to me, changed their focus from kind of no focus into this mpg parenting competitive podcast i love what homer path became i know that there's a lot of people sad to see it leave we have other co-hosts of other shows on the show that it is their actual favorite podcast to listen to taking care of your family first and yourself first is always the most important you know i myself have taken a break from cc from Mythicast, from all of my projects and like we love you man and we just want to just say that we appreciate you and I don't get it like you get it because, like, I don't have as many kids as you. Like, I have two kids. It's already hard, and I can't imagine, like, how difficult it is to try and play Magic, do a Magic podcast, and have as many kids as you do. So, thank you, and I just want to say we appreciate you. Abe, you look like you want to say something.
2: I'm very sad to see that show go. I thought it was a really, really impressively done concept, and uh, the network we're, were worse off for not being able to have it, but... Wishing, wishing him the best, of course. You know, life is very important as much as magic content's important to me. Life's very
0: important to the people who live them. So, taking care of your wife and your kids is like, especially for the the podcast about being like an MPG parent, right? Like, this probably was always going to happen, no matter who did it. I just appreciate that, like Adam was honest about it and like, hey, I, I need to do this thing.
1: But you know, what's more important than family? Nothing. But right below that's magic. So. Let's go over three shortcuts to help you in magic. So this is Spencer's topic uh, for the show this week. I kind of mentioned at the start of the show, we're going to be doing it a little interestingly, So, Spencer, do you want to pitch the idea and then hop right into your topic?
0: Dude, you know what's funny is I don't think that that what we ended up with was, like, my original idea. My original thought was, like, we'd have 15 or something, like, just 15 things that we do. Like, it would be, like, a rapid-fire, quick-topic thing. When I was writing the show and thinking about the show, it made a lot more sense for, like, individuals, being the three of us, to just talk about what we were passionate about in MPG Shortcuts people would have had their own and it wouldn't have been as cool as like us diving deep into like you picked this, let's talk about this. You know, one of the things that we're talked about during this is like are the heuristics we apply to our games. And I'm going to go first because I think that my role both on the show on the Patreon and also like where I want to be in magic is like a great deck builder. I think that deck building has some interesting points that people don't always understand. The first thing I want to talk about is counting slots. A good example of this is something that I said on our text thread, guys, which is like early interaction with these one to two mana interaction spells. And I think that people often confuse, like, you need to be playing the best one at your slot all the time. Let me tell you that I qualified for a Pro Tour with Twin Bolt in my deck. Sometimes it's about maximizing opportunity rather than the best thing you can be doing. A really good example of this that actually has happened a lot over the last few years is two mana mana creatures. Decks end up with, whether it's six or eight or whatever, it's not a 4-4 four, four split or a 4-2 split. It's like a it's like a weird split. And you're like, why are they doing this? And the reason that they're doing it is because specific things are good in specific spots. Mason texted me literally three days ago. Maybe it's two days ago now. And asked me about Lotus Cobra. Spencer Howland. Lotus Cobra has been in standard for forever. And you're not playing it. What's going on? A lot of the decks I want to play Lotus Cobra in are snow decks. And so, thus, what do I want to play, Abe?
2: A little bit of Faceless Haven.
0: That's not legal. So, Sculptor of Winter. And then the other problem is, is like, Prosperous Innkeeper actually does the Lotus Cobra job. It's not as good as Lotus Cobra. What I've come to realize is, like, Tangle Florahedron occupies landslots. Thus, I can play more... Two mana cards. It's rough out there for a lot of different slots, quote-unquote, right? And when we're defining slots, we're like we're looking at cards that are occupying the same space. A good example of this from a recent deck that I have been promoting. Blood Thirst. there's this one mana black card that's an 0-4 that flips into a 3-4 menace. The Concealing Curtain. They occupy this early interaction slot, right? If I want a card against Mono White, I actually don't care really if it's an 0-4 or a kill target creature. Where I care about that is if they're early 4-4s in things like Mono Green. Understanding that is like one of the biggest shortcuts that you can apply to. How many 2-mana ramp spells do I want? How many removal spells do I want in certain slots? One of the biggest criticisms of the deck that I qualified for the Pro Tour was is Spencer has a lot of 1-ups, 2-ups, and 3-ups in his deck. Why is that? It's like, oh, they're occupying the same slots. I actually have five of this thing, four of this thing, six of this thing. You're just seeing it as one ofs and two ofs. I'm seeing it as this. What's even funnier is that, like, when we dive deep into deck building, I did a lot of research today and yesterday over Frank Karsten articles, and one of my favorite articles he ever did was explain the difference between four ofs, three ofs, two ofs, and one ofs one of the baselines and the shortcuts that you can take in deck building is like forest of the cards that you want in your opening hand and that you will draw a percentage. I think it's 26% of the time you will draw multiples by turn four or something. It's like a weird turn. I, I was really surprised reading the article today. Three ofs were things that you wanted to draw one of every game. And then two ofs were things that you wanted for, I think it's, it's like, specific matchups. But one of the things that was interesting is, like, he mentioned one of as like, a win condition you want for, like, combo decks or something like that. And I think that the things that we can do is apply what Frank Carson did from the math perspective. Look at it from an overall perspective from the thing I just talked about, right? Which is counting slots. Fading Hope and Spike Feed Feed Hazard, right? That could probably like, a similar slot, Yeah, in
2: some ways. Yeah, it depends on what you're playing as, but yeah.
0: Defining your position on the slot and then defining on how many you want, right? Like we talked about those two mana ramp spells, Florahedron, or whether it's Lotus Cobra or Innkeeper or Sculptor of Winter. You have to decide, like, what are we trying to do in this slot? And then how does it apply to this rule of math that Frank has given us? The example that I'll use is the Twin Bolt example. I had a Twin Bolt versus the, I think I had three other two mana removal spells. What I specifically wanted was a time in which I drew Twin Bolt against the Atarka Red deck. There wasn't a difference really between the the three damage and the two damage, except when the two damage was more important. When you look at what Frank has said about understanding how you want your cards, like, what is a one-of, Mason, to you? And a deck
1: that doesn't tutor, typically my one-ofs are, are five-ofs.
0: The other version of this other thing, right?
1: Yeah, I did this this weekend with Shadow, and a bunch of people commented on Twitter, and they were confused, but I had three Bolt, two Unholy Heat, one Fatal Push. Three things that answer Creatures that Go Big, and one of them was hedged more for Shadow and less for things like primeval titan so i had two heat one push that way
0: this is so great because this was actually a comment in our uh, patreon discord we literally won the challenge myself mackling and quentin playing grix's death shadow and after the event we were like we were not playing enough bolts i think the thing that we ended up on is we wished that we had three and holy heats one fatal push four bolts understanding that those cards are occupying that similar slot is a shortcut in magic when you're building your deck understanding that these cards are doing a similar thing quote-unquote is going to help you
2: there's a like a really really old mono red heuristic about this this might be too boomer for mason but i'm sure spence will remember what i mean when i say the 20, 20, 20. the
1: 20, 20 lands, 20, 20, 20 spells 20 creatures yes exactly I, that's context clues though <laughs>
0: That Mason would have gotten that from the convex clues, and also I believe Mason has read that article.
1: I haven't read that article. I can't read. Nice try, saying. <laughs> no, <no, no>, no.
2: <laughs> like the, the idea of the 2020, for anyone not familiar was this idea that like if you're building a mono red deck, you're going to be playing twenty lands, twenty creatures, and twenty non creature spells. That's the the one pound this, one pound that, one pound that. The the recipe. Magic and deck building have evolved a lot since then, and what Spencer's saying is a lot deeper than that. But when you look at a deck from, like, a top-down perspective like that, of how many of my slots can be for these things, right? Like, how many of my slots are for my lands? How many of them are for my mana acceleration? How many of them are for my card advantage? How many of them are for my removal spells? My threats, when it comes to whatever archetype you're playing, like, a really good way to start looking at it from a different level.
0: I don't want to get too deep on this, but you just, like, hit the nail on the head. There was literal math done when Blue-Eyed Delver was a deck that how many cantrips occupy a land slot? If you have four cantrips, they get to take the slot of a land. You hate it.
1: I hate it. I would never cantrip for a land. Well, what if it's like duotactium? Yeah, I was like going to say there's
0: raves, there's raves there's raves other there's other raves. ways to do this. Mason, Misa. Mason's like, no, I'm out. Uh, so, but these are the same thing, right? Like we talk about spike field hazard, right? If I play a two three split on spike field hazard and fading hope, how many one minute interactions spells I'm playing? Five. How many lands am I playing? No, that those Spikefield Hazards count as lands. The great thing about
2: cards like Spikefield Hazard or Tangled Hedron is you can think about them the other way, too, where, like, how many lands am I playing? I've played many kind of, like, Flame of Kel mono red decks in Historic before for fun, and I'm like, well, I should just play, like, these Spikefield Hazards as my, like, last two lands. I do want to make sure I have two, two to three lands in my opening hand, but also drawing the extra burn spell in the late game is better than drawing maybe, like, a Forgotten Cave or some other kind of land that mitigates... Like mana distribution issues, it really comes down to how you assess each card on the level of how you're putting it in your deck. I, especially when it comes to double face lands, like double face cards, the what slot is that occupying is a really hard question to answer.
0: I'm a pretty big twenty four lands fan, and two of those lands are always deal damage equal to the number of the creatures you control. It could be a takedown. My last point, sorry, on deck building is mana sources. And there's a few things that I think disagree with a lot of the things that I just said. So, there's a few things. One, you need 14 untapped mana sources to play a one drop. And the number of decks that tried to play Jassari Sentinel or Jasparri Sentinel and didn't have that that failed are a lot. 14 is a lot, guys. We no longer live in the world in which we have 12 dual lands for our two color aggro decks, for example. We don't have man lands, fast lands, and check lands anymore. The Jund Snow deck that I've been promoting. At some point, you have to admit that, like, it's actually too hard to get actually three colors in a deck, regardless of what it is. Evolving Wilds does, in fact, count as three sources. Well We use that as a basic example. But it doesn't count as an untapped source. So if you're trying to play a one-drop and you have an Evolving Wilds, it doesn't count as a one-drop green source for your Elf. What it counts as is a green drop for your mana count. And understanding, like, 1-drops are 14. I think 2-drops from the Frank Carson er article I read is, like, 12. And then 3-drops is, like, 8. It's, like, actually way lower. So it drops, like, significantly after 2-drops. Do you want to play a Fatal Push? I don't need to play it on turn 1. I might need to play it on turn two, and the other cards that might it might occupy, like the concealing curtains, like they occupy the same slot. I don't actually need to play this on turn one. However, if I'm going to play, a lot of the mono green lists are playing two, just sorry sentinels and four of the one drop wolf. That's that's rough. I don't even hate the two just Dis- sentinels, but what I hate is like anyone trying to do it on gruel mana that doesn't actually have the mana sources to do it if you look at what teamer could be in standard versus where it has ended up in the format you'll see a lot of these those are my tips and tricks 14 mana sources for one drops 12 mana sources for two drops eight mana sources for three drops four ofs one ofs three ofs two ofs legendary creatures should never be forced unless you literally want to draw multiples counting slots is important. Like one twin bolt does not count as one lightning strike. They are the same card. You are occupying the same slot for a reason.
1: Mine is something that probably if you listen to our playing through games episode, uh, we'll come back to you, but it is planning ahead as much as we can and then double checking it in the game. So for some of this, it's going to be a little more hard to check things in the moment. Cause you're be, like leading up to the tournament. What are we trying to do with this sort of lesson? What am I trying to teach and impart to you? The tournament starts way before the tournament actually starts. The tournament doesn't start on, you know, Saturday morning at 10 o'clock or whatever, you know, when the, the judge says like, welcome to the 2k, we're gonna have seven rounds today. The tournament starts back as soon as you decide that you're going to go to it and you have time that you can allot to it. And so what is the best way for you to do well this tournament? to maximize your time right so if you pre-plan a bunch of things then you can act on those in the tournament you've already thought about them you've already worked towards them where you've helped succeed towards those things and then in the moment you can double check your work so that latter part's more about gameplay we'll get more to that as it goes on but let's take the example of sideboarding and stuff like that and what's the cyber reaction going to register you can take some time to pre-plan your cyborg plans, right? So when we get to the tournament, we don't have to do it. We see this happen all the time with cyborg guides. We see people sell this because it's such a a hard thing to do, but it is doable on your own. And it can sometimes be helpful to get other people's insights, but you can come up with these cyborg plans. And then when you get to the tournament and you're playing the match, you can double check it. You know, maybe in my original cyborg plan, I wanted to take out all of my discard spells and the shadow mirror, and in the moment, I've learned some more things. I don't have to be constrained to the things and thoughts I had before. It's like, actually, I think post-board, we're going to have more interaction spells for each other, and we always have Lurus. So I think I want to have one I-OK okay in my deck because I can actually kind of clear the way and find it, and it can always, if it's in my hand, I can hold it for a Lurus, or, you know, if, like I have in the early turns, maybe it snags a shadow or something.
0: Dude, I think one of the hold on. Is not That's so such good advice. And something I have not been doing in modern, you keep in the one IOK okay because it's always worth.
2: Yeah, companions changed the game on that
0: especially. Yeah, that's that's unreal. I am
1: before Loris and friends, hundred percent in like the Jun Mirrors. You take out all your discard spells, and now I am you keep one in, and I, I could theoretically see two IOKs being in. But right now I've landed on one. I'll pre-plan that so that when I play my modern. 5k this sunday and i'm playing shadow i'll have well, i'll have a plan oh, ready oh, no,
0: oh, you <laughs> you about Jun here but like as a person that's played more gracious death shadow over most of the modern decks you're going to keep in your thoughts because like you know you're playing death shadow i've been boarding out a lot of iok's what you just said might actually just be way better than what i was doing
1: I do think there is something to that. I think the the board out all plan is not that good. Also, for the truth listeners, all Thoughtseize decks are Jund decks when I talk about them. So if I I'm going to use the example a lot because I just I'm preparing and just played a tournament with Shadow, I'm going to say Jund or whatever. But I, I mean decks that interact on the battlefield and use Thoughtseize as one of their key ways to push through spells or interact with you. I'm sorry for that. I'm going to make the mistake. I'm going to try not to. But I realized that I said that only when Spencer mentioned. Speaking of John, because I was like, I didn't speak of Jund. And then I realized I did the thing. (laughs) So you could come up with your sideboard plans and do that sort of thing, right? And then you have those plans pre-made. And then when you get to the tournament, you can check it in the moment, like we just mentioned with the IOK example. You can do this for other things too when it comes to like What do I want my interaction mix to look like, right? Definitely somewhere in my 75, I want two Fatal Pushes, right? I want to have an answer for Shadows and Hammers. I want to have some number of Unholy Heats for like Merc tide Regents. I want to have some number of Unholy Heats for Planeswalkers like Teferi 5. I want to be able to answer that. You're going to see at a local event, Rhino, stuff like that. And I think that I want some bolts this weekend. So when you have all those sort of things, you can kind of pre-plan and be thinking about that. All the way. So when it gets time for deck registration, the last minute, you've not having to sit there and stress. How many times has anyone ever played a tournament and someone's across them saying like, Ooh, "What should I be doing?" Whatever. It's fine to have those last moments where they're like a little indecisive. But if you pre-plan and thought about it a bunch, even just in your spare time, it'll become a little easier to make those decisions, and you kind of know what your game plan is going into the tournament. Now onto the thing that we did a whole episode on. I'm going to rehash slightly here. If you are playing a deck in the tournament you know you're gonna play the deck. And even if your composition of Fatal Pushes and Holy Heat and Bolts change, you do kind of have a general idea of the cards that are gonna be in your deck on game day. Maybe you're gonna figure out some sick sideboard tech like run afoul right before the tournament, you know, and now you're ready to kill merktide Regents the most part you're going to know. And so you can pre-think about how you want to play out things and the kind of hands you're willing to keep and not willing to keep in matchups you're willing to have. You're not actually in the dark, especially in modern anymore, when you make your mulligan decisions, right? If your opponent has a companion, you now know something about their deck. If they reveal uh Kahira, they're either Belcher or a control deck or an elemental deck, like a hardcore elemental deck. Those you have good information, or maybe they're a dinosaur deck and you prepare to get destroyed. These are the things that can happen. You know, if your opponent has Luris. Burn mill shadow a uh, hammer. These are all things that they can be, and you know that you're gonna like want to leverage your uh, one mana interaction spells because all those decks only know on one mana spells. Yorion, you know that your opponent's gonna go for a longer grindier game in some aspect. So having a hand that maybe you know can take advantage of that or is bad against that, you now know you can make your decision. You can think about all these sort of things and think about the kind of range of hands you can keep. On the episode, we talked a lot about how. I would play out these examples and I would have like, you know, like I have these seven cards in my hand and this is what the board looks like and I'm going to play as an Eidolon. What cards am I willing to pitch to Solitude? What cards am I not? So, that when I get in the moment, I have that decision pre made. I've pre planned it a little bit. And I'll double check it in the moment, but I'll kind of know what my range of things I kind of want to do and how I want to orchestrate the game. Because it's not actually playing turns, you're playing a match, and you're playing the whole game, and you're orchestrating all your moves towards your end game. You should have a winning image, which I'll talk about a little bit more here in a minute. You can just think about sevens that you can keep. Think about seven cards that your Death Shadow Hand can have. Okay, is this a hand I would keep? All right, if I, would I keep this as my opponent reveals Lurus, Yorion, Kahira, no companion. That's a lot easier to do. You see people do this all the time at tournaments. They just shuffle their deck and draw seven cards and talk about it. You can do that at any point. You can do it in the shower, you can do it anywhere. You can literally, if you wanted to, there are websites where like, I, I think Goldfish has it, but like, it's like draw sample hand. Uh, no, sorry, it's, it's the magic. It's the M2GO50 site that has draw sample hands. You just go there, you just make a bunch of sample hands, send them to yourself in an email and you can pull them up. So you don't have to actually like kind of come up with examples. You just have a bunch. You can send them to your group chat. And if your group chats like trying to get that 1% extra and you're all playing shadow, you could have everyone talk about the hands.
0: We used to do know. this so much on every drive to every PTQ I ever did. Somebody pulled out their deck, drew an opening seven and we debated Sneep ditch every hand like mulligan decisions are actually just like free equity and people don't realize it. Mulliganing is actually where most games are won and loss.
1: It's just not actually shown because you don't have all the information and you get a bunch of new tools along the way, but sometimes you pre lost a game and before companions, mind you, I'm talking a lot about modern here, right? Is this hand keepable enough against enough parts of the metagame slash? Like if it's not, maybe you shouldn't play your deck, but like you just think about those sort of things. But for modern specifically where we have a bunch of companions, you have a lot of information at the start of a game. If my opponent doesn't have a companion, what are the top three decks you think they could be playing that are like good decks? Domino Creativity. Good answer. I like that one. Is there one that maybe I played too much when I shouldn't? <laughs> and I was yeah, mad an myself for playing Amulet. Okay, that's a great one. It was the third one. I'll give you a hint. You have a good matchup versus it every time you play Modern.
0: Blue Eye Controls shouldn't do it, so it has to be like another control deck, which was Mark tied
1: If if you sit down, I, I think other acceptable answers are like Rhinos and Yawgmoth. Like any of those five decks we just mentioned.
0: Rhinos I had not considered. That actually might be above Mark Tide for what it's worth.
1: I think it depends on where you're at in the tournament. I also think very lowly of Rhinos and have a losing record of Rhinos in tournaments.
0: Everybody (laughs) I know does not think highly of Rhinos.
1: That deck is bad. (laughs) That is my take on it. We can talk about that a different day. But I am not a Rhinos fan. It is a good bad deck. That's all I'm going to say. Anyways, so you have a lot of pre-planning you can do, right? We've talked about a lot of stuff where you've pre-planned and pre-thought and think about how much extra equity you get and how much extra thought process you have when you look at your opening hand and it's Ragavan, two fetches, and the rest are discard spells. And you've decided, like, if I'm in a Luris matchup, I actually want to keep this hand because I get to go discard, discard uh, Ragavan, or if they have extra removal spells, just like strip all their removal or strip all their threats and then start dashing every turn. And you've pre-done that, where if you're at a tournament, I think the hand I just mentioned for a lot of people might lead them thinking, would I keep, you know, three Thoughtseize, IOK, Ragavan, two lands against a Luris deck? Probably, right? But they have to stop and think about it, and that's a little extra time, and then these things add up. And you just double-check your work real quick at the actual tournament, which I'm a pretty big fan of. Like, for non-obvious plays, take that half beat and double-check your work. I've seen a bunch of people, and I guess this is actually kind of part of the lesson here, but a bunch of people lose tournament matches, and then they'll come to talk to you, and you'll be like, how was your round, buddy? And your friend will be like, ah, oh, I just didn't think for a half second, and I lost. My only loss uh, in the Swiss last weekend is because I did this exact thing, where I had my opponent on one and saw Grist. They played a monkey. I had a monkey in play. I hit them. I attack, I hit a land. I Bobble again, their next card's unearth." And I just didn't think and cast my eye okay.
0: In the modern challenge we won, we had a seven-minute debate. Here is what Mason and Abe said about Thoughtseize versus DRC DRC or or Ragavan. I think they're wrong. We should do this. And then we had a seven-minute debate. Won anyway. And I'm really proud of you right now. The thing that is so important to what you're saying, Mason, is that you have these pre-plans, but you're also challenging them. It's not just, here's my plan beforehand, it's, okay, here's my plan beforehand, what if X?
1: We, we joked about how, like, when Corey Baumeister won the Invitational, at the end of October, beginning of November, he played Shadow, and I said Shadow was a bad deck in Modern, and I don't think it's actually that good. And we were joking about how five of the top eight was Shadow this last weekend. When I made that statement, the context is that Blue-White is one of the most played decks that main decks three Chalice of the Voids. I don't believe Corey, I think Corey played a good deck at like a weird time and got through some stuff. I think Shadow is probably the best deck in Modern right now, or the second best deck. What matters is the time I say it and the times we think about things, right? And you have to double check them in the moment, which comes to the pre-planning. You listen to these podcasts, you listen to us, you listen to Jerry, you listen to CCR and them, and we tell you these things and we give you these kind of big picture ideas and these pre-planning things that you kind of have, but in the moment they won't always be right. If they were always right, Magic wouldn't be a sick game. It would be a very boring game. You have to kind of challenge these things and the pre-planning just lets you have more information and thought about it more critically so that when you get in the moment, you're not having to start from s- square zero. Like, oh, I'm actually you know, a little bit into this or I've turned this over or like Spencer's example, it's like, hey guys, I know that Mason and Abe said this, but I think they're wrong for these reasons. We should do this. And in a tournament, you're probably not gonna actually have seven minutes you're not a Modo. But you'll at least have an idea, and you also have an idea of what to look for. Mason Abe mentioned, like, you know, if they have this, do this. But they actually don't actually have that at the start. They played Sir Garda's 8-on-1 and not Esper Sentinel. So I think I should play this instead. And now you have that sort of idea, and you've kind of used the information you had, and you've pre-planned and, in the moment, acted on it differently. And that, that's the whole point is that you have these kind of ideas. There's a, there's a show or something, but this person's like in a loop and they've died a bunch of times and they always come back and they they know what's going to happen. So like the first time they walk in, they get shot. But like the first day he walks in the battlefield and gets shot in the head. He respawns, he lives his day, and now he knows he's going to get shot there. The pre-planning lets you do a similar thing where it's like, I've learned that if I keep these sort of hands, like I can't keep four bobbles DRC mountain or whatever. Like that's not a keepable... To hand, I, I I can't do that. You've done all these sort of works and stuff, and you can act on it in the moment, figure these sort of things out. You know these exchanges. We ha- this happens in Magic all the time. You're actually already doing this. You're just not doing it outside of games you play. People play test games so they can do this, and they do it in the moment, and it's more fun than thinking about it. But if you think about it, it's the same as the test games as long as you're honest with yourself and you critically think about these things. There's no difference in doing what I'm saying, and if me and Spencer were to play on Modo, When I mulligan my seven hands and think about that, I'm doing the exact same thing, except I know more information than I'm about to play some magic. Do these sort of things. It will really help you. Pre-planning and preparing for your tournament is one of the best ways ever. If I tell Abe, do you know the spells you want to daze against elves on turn one, you know, or whatever, he'll know. That's kind of all I have uh, left to say on this one. I think, Mason,
2: that it's really not only... It's kind of like funny to me,
1: but also really on brand that your
2: shortcut... For the uh, for the shortcut episode is there's not really shortcuts. You should just think about how to make more shortcuts Yeah, <laughs> shortcuts are so good. I'm not going to give you any shortcuts other than that you really need to use shortcuts. But I think it's awesome because like in there, there are a lot of shortcuts you can take, you know,
1: and good processes. We talked about them with like looking at opening hands and stuff. Do I trade my Ragavans on one? It depends on your hand. Spencer, what if your hand has two more Ragavans? I would keep a hand that's six really good cards and an extra Ragavan on the draw.
0: I would keep Thotsy's Ragavan. Ragavan? No, rag-a-van. I wouldn't. No, I no, would no, no,
1: keep... no. But what I'm saying is whatever your hand is, and then you're on the draw and your first draw steps are Ragavan. Like you just get very unlucky. and you.
0: Oh, no, I would, I would snap off that Ragavan. There's, you can do that with I, all of them. It, it's so funny because like your whole game's
1: pre-planned and know what you're supposed to do. And then when you play against people like me, you're like, "Wow, why is Mason stacking?" I it's all so I
0: played this game before. It's so funny because like I think that like magic players are really bad at this part of magic. And like if I have a Ragavan in my opener and I draw a Ragavan, I'm gonna snap off turn one Ragavan just to have Ragavan on the field. And what we don't consider is like. How nobody else is considering how that turns out. I do think that what Mason just said is like oh, a shortcut that is real that he is not explaining.
2: <laughs> like the end of the day tournament magic is, is a sum of your pre-planning and your ability to adapt to the reality of the situation. It's, it's like taking a big hard test. You get to bring a study
0: guide. I, n- I never, to I study. never took the ACT or the SAT, so.
2: I mean, even you never took a test in school where you were able to you studied beforehand, and then the questions aren't exactly what you studied on the study guide, but they're close, and you got to adapt to them. That's gonna do it for mine, Abe.
1: Take us home, baby.
2: It's kind of great that uh, Mason gave you this like pre-game talk. Spencer gave you the the deck building talk. I'm here to talk a little bit about in-game play decisions and something that I do a lot. It's actually just like one of the biggest heuristics and simplifications that I use in-game. I suppose I have to play quickly when I'm playing uh, like limited or lots of constructed matches, which is just boiling games down to the raw card quantity and the resources involved. What that means is like, I have five cards in hand and you've got four cards in hand, I'm up one card, right? That's that's a very simple equation to do. And it was probably something that I picked up and is most useful nowadays, applicable in like decks that play Counterspell or Force of Will in like Modern or Legacy. At a certain point, your goal, if you're playing like blue-away control, is to lock your opponent out of their draw steps by going up one card, right? It's, you, you go plus one on them, one of your cards trades for one of their cards straight up. It's the like fundamental principle of a control deck is like, I'll counterspell your spell and you got to draw one card. And I also plus my Teferi or cast this other draw spell. And so now I'm up those cards on this exchange and you only get the draw step. When you really boil a game down, there are times where like, knowing the count and knowing where you are in terms of raw resources makes it a lot easier to know, okay, should I trade off the things I have in play or should I be spending my life total to gain an advantage here? Should I, like, my opponent's attacking me? Should I be blocking? Should I be losing a creature to keep that life? Should I be double blocking to, like, lose two
0: cards for one card? Can we, like, talk about how relevant this is in current standard because of the white black deck we are in like a really weird weird world where any deck that plays wedding announcement resources just matter differently especially when you like a mono red deck top eight of the first tournament, mono white just dominated the last tournament. Like what is a resource worth, right? How do you shortcut that ape?
2: I think that wedding announcement is a great example of, or the mid range deck, or the black white range deck of where that comes into play and how you can think about that is like, which is more valuable to you right now based on where you are in the game state. If you have creatures in play and can get some damage across, but it'll mean you draw a card with your wedding announcement instead of making a token Is that worthwhile? Do you need more cards in hand or do you need more presence on the board because you're gonna need to have more time via having more creatures in play and being able to take more draw steps and maybe use your planeswalkers more, whatever it is to push the game further in your direction or like, do you need to be closing the game? Those are things that are really easily informed by, you know, sometimes just taking a step back and looking at, okay, I'm drawing two cards a turn. My opponent's only drawing their one card a turn. I'm ahead on board. I have more creatures. When you really can boil the game down, and it's a lot harder in a lot of constructed formats because a lot of times, you know, if you're playing an aggro deck and your opponent's playing a mid-range deck, your cards individually, they're less impactful and worth less of a card sometimes than your opponent's. In cases where you're trying to nullify all of your opponent's cards, like, in control, these counts become very important. Like, the reason that, like, Colgan's Command, pick up my creature, you discard a card. Like, the difference between that and killing a creature and picking up a creature... Those different kinds of plays can be very well-informed by just thinking about the raw count. Because ultimately, the Game of Magic is about the draw steps and the resources you have. And when you're able to take time to boil it down to, should I be trading this card for a random card in their hand so I can slowly run them out of resources? And like, should I trade off my 2-2 for their 2-2? Or do I need this because I'm going to need the life points later to have more time and more draw steps to my better cards?
0: This led into both what Mason said and what I said. Mason talked about, like, the value and, like, the adjustment. And I talked about, like, the overall game plan, right? I went in with game plan, Mason went in with adjusting, and now you're saying, like, we've done both of those things. Now, what is a X worth?
2: Like, I like to think about evaluating the framework of just the game you're playing sometimes. I'm very well known to a lot of people for playing a lot of Jeskai Control in Modern, despite having played numerous other decks and m- much to my dismay actually, I, I, I hate I, to
0: tell you buddy but i think you might be known as the hammer time player now
2: it's kind of nice to not feel like i'm a control
1: guy to most people anymore why does that upset you mason you don't want to be known as the adeline guy now i watched someone play adeline into a dress down format it was just like nice deck idiot
0: the people love to put players into boxes
1: I've played five different decks in the last five victories. Titan of guy? No, is, that, he's, is that amulet he's like, guy like over there? He's like the most
0: amulet guy, which for no reason makes any sense. You know, I think Mason's SCG top eights consist of, like, amulet and gates.
1: I, I lost on one for top eight playing
0: gates. I never even did well with, like, Green Black Snake, and, like, Mason made, like, a meme that, like, people messaged me about Green Black Snake, like, an inappropriate amount. If it was Cobra, as you have pointed out, like, then it might have been more appropriate. The thing that you're hitting at, Abe, is that it doesn't matter what Mason's doing, what Spencer's doing, what Abe is doing. What matters is, like, what are we trying to do worth versus the overarching theme of Magic the Gathering, right? It's so easy when you look at, like, cards in hand, right? This was a quote-unquote two-for-one. But, like, once you get into, like, wedding announcement stuff, what is it really worth,
2: and that's kind of where, like, the subjectivity of it comes in, right? To kind of bring it back to my point about being called a control player, I did and do have a long history of playing a lot of more controlling instant speed decks because I found that that was one of the easier ways for me to evaluate the game that
0: was happening, right? It's the easiest. As somebody who, like, it was like the blue-white control player for three years... It is so much easier to, like, decide if you want to answer a spell than if you want to play a threat. Yeah, like,
2: at some point, you cast your Supreme Verdict, and then you untap in a safe position. You're like, okay, now I have six cards in hand because I've resolved the Sphinx's Revelation, and you have two. And now my two counterspells invalidate those two cards, and your draw step, if any of those are a land, I've won the game now. Being able to do things like that or or solve problems like that and think about the game in that way was very natural to me. And I kind of like lean on that a lot when it comes to to my fundamentals, something that I see a lot of players not think about enough, you know, when they get to a position where it's like, okay, the game is kind of drawn out or, you know, I need to figure out where I'm going, taking stock of just the bare number of resources going on, right? I have more creatures in play or they have more cards in hand than me. And using that to inform a decision is something that I think more players could really benefit by doing. And it's definitely the number one heuristic I tend to lean on when it comes to playing games.
0: So do you have a heuristic on like what a treasure is worth or like what a creature token is like, like a one, one creature token. Like, is there, is there, I mean,
2: the things like that are so contextual, right? Like the value of a mana in play is relative to how much other mana I have in play or the value of like drawing a card matters only in the context of how well I can use the card I might draw. Right.
0: I've been a pretty big fan of uh is it Prismari Command, the one that destroys an artifact yeah. is too. I've destroyed a lot of treasures with that card. I've won a lot of games Stink too. Cold. It honestly feels like that, Mason. I understand that like, okay, if you're on this mana, this is what's gonna happen to me. Uh, what I love about your point, Abe, is that it like goes back to Mason's point and my point. If the game plan is about X Let's not let them do X. If their deck consists of X, let's make X hard for them.
2: Let's say when it comes to wedding announcement, often the times where I will choose to stop attacking with a wedding announcement in play to get more tokens is once I'm up many cards on my opponent, right? Because I don't need to keep on pressing the advantage of how many resources I'm going to have access to. I need to start making sure I don't lose the advantage I have in play. The next card I draw, having eight cards in hand versus seven, doesn't really matter that much my opponent only has one or two.
0: It depends on which winning announcement deck you're playing, I guess.
2: It's really about figuring out what the best way for you to like move the game forward towards is what resource angle you're winning on. And taking stock of is, I think, really important and I think is a really good way to start shortcutting decisions and making those big decisions you have to make in a game of Magic when you're navigating a lot easier to simplify and think about from a different level uh, in the moment.
1: I think the thing that is the overarching lesson of all of these is that it is all contextual to what's going on. I think the the biggest way that points up in Spencer's is like the twin bolt or like the fifth of of a card, right? Or like, what's the, the point of it? And in mine, it's like you kept a hand that had two ragavans and you drew the third on turn two. Now does your heuristic change? How does this matter? And the same with A with like, okay, normally a wedding announcement deck, I play like this. But this game, I'm going to do it like this. Or this is how it's going to matter in this one. And figuring that sort of things out, solving for them in game is the overarching thing. And Magic is a really, really hard and really, really complex and complicated game. It is hard as content creators for us to give you bite-sized nuggets that would be actionable in a game. And so with a shortcut like this is to try and help you get you know little edges and little percentages. But at the end of the day, you do have to kind of figure out each individual puzzle in the moment. Working on thinking about all these sort of things so that you're solving the puzzle of how the deck's supposed to be built, or how the match was supposed to play out, or how uh, this interaction's gonna play out can actually be easily actionable in game. There were a lot of other little things that we kind of touched on in there, and hopefully those help to make it so that, you know, you're able to actually go out there and really get something from this and have it actual in your games because it is so hard and if it was easy for us to tell you things like this, it wouldn't be the game that has all this stuff about it.
0: Yeah, I would almost take them in the step-by-step, like, in all honesty. I don't know if either of you disagree with me, but, like, if you could take them in Spencer's advice, Mason's advice, and then Abe's advice in order, I actually think that would be a huge help
2: it's hard to talk about shortcuts as things that you can start to rely on you know because shortcuts are shortcuts for a reason they're not the real way there right like they'll help you make better decisions in the moment if you remember them as kind of a guideline there is no one maximable that's just like yep you do this and everything's easier now i i gotta tell you man
0: i did coaching for like three years and everybody asked me for that shortcut
2: if i had the shortcut What do you think I'm doing here?
0: We did this video with you and me, Abe, on the the Concerted Criticism channel. People loved it.
2: I'm still getting messages for coaching. I have two people who I'm working with. uh... Still
0: still people love it. And Mason and I are going to do Money Pile, right, Mason? Like, you're going to teach me Money Pile. That's great. You have to get the things we talked about down. Before you apply... One of the best pieces of feedback I got on the, the video with Abe was... Spencer understood enough to ask Ape questions. That was, like, the main piece of feedback. And it's like... Yeah, I mean, I've, like, played Affinity before. And I've played Stoneforge decks before. So, like, I had these pieces to put together. If you follow the order of deck building, pre-planning, adjusting in order, you will just win more games of Magic. It is shortcut by shortcut by shortcut by shortcut, not... It's not like a thing you can do tomorrow. I hope that's not what people get out of this episode because I don't I don't think that's true.
2: There's a huge value to having shortcuts you put in place, but knowing how to put those shortcuts in place, like knowing the mathematical values for Frank Carson articles that you brought up, Spencer, helps you. It makes it easier. You have to do less iteration to get to the point where you're like, okay, I have enough mana sources to cast my spells, or doing what Mason said and spending all this time developing these specific heuristics around the things you're going to be doing the way you want to play your deck out, evaluating what kind of spots you should be going for certain kinds of plays with your deck in game. Those are all good heuristics to develop. You can't just rely on just doing the same thing over and over. It's not like a game where you can just match the patterns and that's how you win every time because everything's so different and everything's so contextual.
1: That's going to do it for this week's episode. We are going to do our Patreon question. We're going to be a patron of the show. Go to ccmtg on patreon.com. You can do things like the shout out, get to the discord and ask questions like Ben did this week. Been asked, when testing for a tournament, how many games do you test before making changes? For example, I'll usually play three plus leagues on MTGO, then go over the notes of the matchups and make one or two changes and retest. But I'll have the habit, mainly on Arena due to speed of matches, of having a bad run and changing too much. Personally, when it comes to this, I will make changes about every league, in part because if I'm playing them, I have already where I've thought about a bunch of stuff, and I kind of want to see them in the moment and see if there are things I was missing. That's not to say I always change a card every league, and I have definitely know. If you've seen my streams, we've played the same Amulet list, like, you know, nine... Days in a row, never changing your card. And we've also played GOG, where we change your card every single league, you know? And not even full of five matches, you know? We, like, two oh two and we drop. It really matters so much more on, like, what's trying to go on. And I think you're never going to play enough games to actually get enough information on any of these changes. And it's the classic Ellen Bogan quote of, like, figure out the information from non-sufficient data. With that being the case, I kind of think it's much more like, I will change it when I need to. Because playing three leagues is not, like... That's the sauce. And now I've got enough context, you know? I feel like I can often tell stuff after playing a matchup one or two times. Like, if it's going to be good or not. Assuming the play patterns play out the way that I'm thinking and not differently.
0: The last point you just made is, like, exactly how I feel. Like, this matchup either plays how I think it will play, or I need to make adjustments. I am the type of person that plays... I play uh, offense on Arena rather than playing ladder pretty often. There are so many times on Arena where I just want to concede after a 2 because I've already made my money back to change my deck. And you're like, Spencer, you're 2-0. You want to change your deck already? I'm like, yeah. Like, I've already realized that something that I thought was true was wrong even after I'm winning. I think that people think that it's a trap to change your deck after a short number of matches But I think that Mason's point in the main topic of the episode, if you thought X, X didn't happen, and also, like, you could consider Y number of scenarios where X didn't happen, you're probably wrong. And you should change your deck. Whether it's your sideboard plan, whether it's your main deck plan, like, I have a really weird mono White list. If you're a patron, I encourage you to play it. I uh, literally think I have the best Mono White deck in Standard. But I I do think that, like, so much happens between games, understanding how, like, the Hive mind considers things and how you consider things, that I, I think it's pretty okay to change things between leagues. I know that that's like a 5 kind of thing for MGO. That is an appropriate amount of time to consider those changes.
2: If you're playing through leagues on Moto and then making notes of your matches and then making one or two changes and doing that again, you actually have a really good process in place, it sounds like, where you're evaluating things going on in your games, you're looking at what cards matter and what don't, and then trying to adjust to you know do the things that you want to do more and the things that you don't want to wind up doing less, testing that. But what I think that you might benefit from doing, if you feel like you're doing, you're like making too many changes when you lose, you might be doing too too many changes. Is actually you, instead gotta, of evaluating you gotta win based more, on... Abe.
0: The fix for this is winning more, so that you're making changes. No, for... it, it's not. It's actually <laughs> no, it's just, actually that I, you
2: should. I'm just kidding. i um, <laughs>
0: just joking.
2: You should be looking at the problem differently, right? It's not about your win rate that you should be caring about when you're playing these leagues to learn. It's that you should be worrying about making the deck that's going to win the most. And that means you should be spending time making changes that try out more new things, right? If the, if you're changing one or two cards, the amount of difference that's gonna have on most of your games, if you're just changing like one three-drop for another three-drop in like one or two copies, or putting in a different five-drop or whatever in your mid-range deck, that's not going to change a ton. But if you are changing something drastic, you're like, oh, I think elite spellbinder is bad in Mono White, I'm gonna go back to playing Skyclave Apparition or whatever, or like I'm gonna play Brutal Cathar. I'm gonna change something foundational and find out how that plays. And use that change, make a more drastic change, play a little less maybe with it to get more information about more other things, and then kind of aggregate how you felt about those games. That's, that's I think, the most ground you can gain in your I, process by, I by doing that. Th-
0: I think one of the biggest games you can make in Magic goes into what you just said, Abe, where I won this match so easily. Like, it was unbelievably easily that I can make sacrifices for something else and understanding like where i can make those sacrifices that don't quote unquote matter to an individual matchup and then matter more to the long term of like the process and like what my deck is i actually think hammer time is a really good example of this where like whether it's the equipment package you're playing or the sideboard cards you're playing like you get a lot of opportunities to like say, "This is what matters. Here's what I'm attacking, and then let's go from here." If you just like three t- three cards in a hammer list, for what it's worth, because of the number of tutors you play, because of the way that the deck plays out, like it's a pretty big deal. I actually think mono green aggro, weirdly enough, is a really good example of this, where it's like, okay, what are the most important cards in the format? And then what are the most important cards to make my draw happen? I think both of them have this like really clear linear progression of this makes this thing matter. And you need to either adjust towards that thing or away from that thing according to the format.
2: It's all about which cards you're changing, right? If you're changing something foundational, you're going to see more change and learn more than if you're changing something like at the fringes, right? If you're changing your removal split, like changing what your fifth copy of a removal spell is, or the fourth copy or whatever, you're going to see less return from that than if you change what your core plan is. And, and so playing 15 matches of a deck on Magic Online is a lot, and you're probably getting good information. And I think you should just focus more on trying to get more out of the things you're learning, and maybe take more steps towards, like evaluate what you're changing more. Not necessarily like worry about if you're winning or losing, but what the structures are that are
1: making that happen. That's going to do it for this week's episode after the short YouTube comment, because we do also pull a comment from the YouTube every week. But this next one is a spoiler, and we're, we're in a no-spoiler zone, and it's from Patty and says, almost to 400, any fun plans. And that's next week's episode, baby.
0: One one of the reasons I quit CC was episode 300. Whatever you guys want to do, I'm down.
2: Let's do a podcast.
0: That sounds so fun. I had so much fun this week. Let's do it again next week.
2: Yeah, that sounds great,
0: guys. <laughs> Mason, <laughs> <playing>. Mason, <laughs> Mason rubbing his face there was so great. He's like, Yeah, we do that every week, Spencer. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome.
1: Yeah. Mason, don't you think it's awesome? It's, uh, it's so radical, but my
0: God. You actually don't need any pressure. Like, I did not expect to get 100 episodes of this podcast. You could not have convinced me that we we get that far. Mason made 200 really special for me. 300 was a huge letdown in, like, where the podcast was at, where I was at, where Magic was at. And, like, I have no expectations other than thank you to everybody who's still listening. From the feedback we've gotten this month, we're in, like, a really good place. And I think that a huge part of that has to do with, like, The way you're leading the show, Mason, the way that Abe interacts with me, uh, despite what anyone will say, like, the far less talking that I do on the show, uh, and I I appreciate you too, and I'm really grateful that I could be part of this.
1: Big A. I think I think for big A and I, when I say... (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't quite fit. You know, I tr- I kind of thought I could push through, and the big A thing would kind of stick. You know, big A, but it just doesn't doesn't right, happen.
0: It does sound like you're calling his ass really big. For I what it's worth,
1: this is and a lot of it uh, uh, Here's the him. thing, man. Like,
0: <laughs> we don't make that much. Like, we'll lose the twenty eight cents that we got from this podcast. But like, it does sound like you're saying that Abe has a big ass.
2: I'm dummy thick.
0: <laughs> I am dummy thick. For what it's worth.
1: And with that, Mason take us home. If you wanna find us, you can find us each and every week here on CCMTG. You can find Spencer over on Twitter at Spencer13H. You can find them on the Need to Nerd Podcast every other week. And the corresponding other week, you can find them on Mythicast here on the same feed. If you want to find Abe, you go to Tree of Tales.
0: Wait, well, can I ask why you picked that Artifact Land? So oh. I was going
2: to call it Vault of Whispers. I had everything drawn up, all of the branding, the post written, and everything. And then, as I was falling asleep and thinking about Artifact lands, I went, Tree of Tales is a ten times better name in the same cycle of cards! And had to redo everything the next morning, and then launched. So that's why it's Tree of Tales. It's a it's a place for people to share their stories about playing competitive magic in a time where those stories are getting harder and harder to find.
0: So. There was a time where a concerted criticism that God. 3,000% increase in listeners and page views. And what happened is some magic person reviewed podcasts and said that constructive criticism was the best name in history of podcasts. <laughs> I've already literally physically been in the same room with Todd arguing about the fact that we used his blog name that didn't exist for five years, but Tree of Tales is a great name, and I was curious why you had it, even though Mason just looked at me like I was a dead person.
1: I, I guess it happened before the show. I just remember being here. I also have got to use the bathroom. And so, A, what's your Twitter handling? Because I can't remember and I'm going to sign oh, us out. Tree of, of
2: Tales before. MTG for the blog. We, I, I said last week we got the First Things Out. I have been kind of swamped with other things, so... This week, things will be coming out. You can also find me on Twitter, Twitter twitter.com
1: slash more nothings. And, uh, yeah, that's it for me. Awesome. We'll see you all here next week for episode 400 of CCMTG.